Hello and welcome to the 2021 Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, presented as part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And my name is Maeve Higgins. In this special podcast series, we'll explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 20th of May as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Now, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English. It's worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. On today's episode, we'll be looking at On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by poet and novelist Oshun Wong. And this one is just, I mean, it really is a poet's novel, Maeve, but it's also a novel, I think, that makes the case for more poetry in novels because it's not (laughs) overly long. You know, it's it's not like he allows the language to run away with him, but it's just full of such beautiful yearning imagery Uh, from nature. Um, And it tells a story that's quite intimate. It's the story of a man writing a letter to his mother who can't read. Um, And it's inspired by uh, Ocean's own upbringing um, and his own family history. So it's kind of lives somewhere, I think, on the cusp between novel and and autofiction. But he allows us this kind of sweeping and intimate look at uh, the life of his character who's called Little Dog throughout and um, which is kind of a pet name, but also a name used to protect from violence because of the notion that in you know rural Vietnam, uh, you name something precious after something worthless so that somebody won't take it away. Um, and that could be kind of the central metaphor for the entire book. Right, that, that kind of, of fear and... Yeah, yeah, and Protecting lots. but hurting and, oh God. Absolutely. And, it you know, it tells the story of a boy brought to America. Um, he is uh, the product of his grandmother is Vietnamese. His grandfather was an American soldier. Um, and then, you know, his mother... Uh, and the grandmother come to the US with him and he tries to find his own identity and um, he mm-hmm. kind of falls in love. He tries to find a place for himself in this difficult, dangerous world that is America. Um, and it's very interesting because, you know, it's a it's a novel that talks about class, about poverty, about race. But the interesting thing is, you know, that the grandmother the grandmother uh, meets this American GI during the Vietnam War. Um, so we're talking about people here who are relatively young. You know, they're not, mm. this is not ancient history. This is relatively recent history. It's second half of the 20th century. And yet what we meet are these two kind of central women figures in the novel who are so beautifully drawn and drawn with such empathy, but they're so beaten down by war by the war that was inflicted on them, by the the devastation that was inflicted on their lives by this war, and then having to come to an America which really doesn't want to take um, responsibility for the fracture um, and the dislocation that it caused in this country halfway across the world. And the impact of that then on on the children, right? Like immigrants' children, I suppose, specifically refugees' children. And that's so beautifully drawn out here because... Like as he said, he's he's a poet, right? But every every word he kind of makes, everything he writes, places him that bit further away from his mother. And like there's a cool scene, um, you know, that really shows how it's helpful for, you know, children. You know, when they go to the supermarket, they're trying to order oxtail and like 
yes the, the mom and yeah. the granny are like making the like doing moo sounds and being like this is what we need and he's like okay that's it I'm going to speak for them like I'm going to learn English and this humiliation is never going to happen again and he does but then it's like catch 22 because he becomes this stunning writer and that actually creates a gulf between him and his elders it's just like unwinnable you know yeah yeah and the whole book is in the form of a letter that that the mother his mother can never read you know oh. so there's this just this kind of tragic sense of of disconnect between them and um, but it's also a novel that focuses on the america of today like with really yeah. kind of scalpel like attention to issues of things like class and migration and issues of things like addiction and um, you know there's a central love story which is torn apart by um, issues around addiction. And as the novel unfolds, we meet more and more people whose lives have been destroyed by this, you know? Um, so, and there's a huge amount about how a kind of America kind of devours its own in a way, you know, that these, these pharmaceutical companies are pushing out these opioids, which are leading people in working class areas to become addicted and mm -hmm. thus kind of completely uh, stymieing any potential that they have in their lives. And he manages to pack all of this into such a slim novel. Um, and he does it with such tenderness that the, the, although it's got a lot of weighty themes and a lot of sadness, you know, he really sees the beauty in everything as well. Um, and I'd love you to read uh, just an extract, um, one of the little kind of paragraph headers where he's writing uh, to his mother, about his own kind of bifurcated identity and how he had hoped that writing would help him understand it, but maybe it hasn't quite. Sure thing. Okay. There is so much I want to tell you, Ma. I was once foolish enough to believe knowledge would clarify, but some things are so gauzed behind layers of syntax and semantics, behind days and hours, names forgotten, salvaged and shed, that simply knowing the wound exists does nothing to reveal it. I don't know what I'm saying. I guess what I mean is that sometimes I don't know what or who we are. Days I feel like a human being, while other days I feel more like a sound. I touch the world not as myself, but as an echo of who I was. Can you hear me yet? Can you read me? When I first started writing, I hated myself for being so uncertain about images, clauses, ideas, even the pen or journal I used. Everything I wrote began with maybe and perhaps and ended with I think or I believe. But my doubt is everywhere, Ma. Even when I know something to be true as bone, I fear the knowledge will dissolve, will not despite my writing it stay real. I'm breaking us apart again so that I might carry us somewhere else. Where exactly, I'm not sure. Just as I don't know what to call you, white, Asian, orphan, American, mother. Sometimes we are given only two choices. While doing research, I read an article from an 1884 El Paso Daily Times, which reported that a white railroad worker was on trial for the murder of an unnamed Chinese man. The case was ultimately dismissed. The judge, Roy Bean, cited that Texas law, while prohibiting the murder of human beings, defined a human as only white, African-American or Mexican. The nameless yellow body was not considered human because it did not fit in a slot on a piece of paper. Sometimes you are erased before you are given the choice of stating who you are. 
I just think that's a fascinating little anecdote. Um, and there are a few of those throughout that really give us a sense of the development of America and how mm. overlooked the Asian community are and how difficult it is that once you kind of transcend one identity, you have no place at all. Um, mm. And I just think, you know, the notion of, of, of Judge Roy Bean, one of these kind of familiar, almost comic seeming characters from the, from the old West was making these kind of judgments. Um, it's kind of, well, it's very horrifying really. And, and it kind of made me think about a lot of the violence that's taking place towards Asian Americans today. Um, especially in the wake of coronavirus, um, this yeah. kind of overlooked community. Yeah, and um, and there's that, and there's that horror and that history, and then there's also um, these young writers, you know, like Ocean Vong, who are reclaiming it and who are uh, resisting that erasure, right? With such, um, like, I think the word you used was tenderness, and with this art that he makes, and that's something really beautiful and and really important I think too the you know the resistance against this victimization it's so cool yes and I'm so excited for our listeners to hear Ocean talk about his art and his craft himself so we'll head over to the interview now Thanks so much for joining us today, Ocean. Um, I have to say, I'm so excited to talk to you about On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous because I've been such a fan of your work since reading Night Sky with Exit Wounds a couple of years ago. And it was just a beautiful thing to be able to move on and read the novel and see where the two pieces kind of intersected, the way that the themes spoke to each other, how some of the subject matter was shared, but also how there was a very different, a very different kind of story. I felt like there were two halves of a kind of a palimpsest laid on top of each other, that they complemented each other so well. And, and I just love to start off by asking, did you write the poetry? Were you writing the poetry and the novel in pieces simultaneously? Um, I know they came out a few years apart. Or did you address the subject matter through poetry first and then think of moving on to the novel form? Right, right. Um, well, thank you so much, Jessica, for, for being here and for asking a um, brilliant question off the bat. Um, I, I think for me, I, I was most interested in seeing my obsessions as inexhaustible sites um, for creating. And so I, I just didn't want, you know, I just never felt that one book, whether it's po prose or poetry, could be an ultimate finite container for the questions that I'm interested in asking. And so it, it felt very arbitrary for a paperback collection of poems, you know, what, 90 pages to kind of be the final word, even for myself, let alone, you know, uh, in the social sphere. Um, and so I think the novel was a true experiment um, in that I wanted to see if I could take the similar subjects into a different form and whether I would find anything new, or I would learn anything. And I told myself, if I'm being redundant, if I'm just repeating what I'm doing in my poems, then I'll just give it up and then I'll still, I'll still be a poet and it'll be my little secret, uh, my little private car crash, if you will, and then nobody would know. <laughs> Um, so, you know, and that, that kind of led one chapter after another until one day I said, oh, Lord, it's a book, uh, you know, and then I kind of went from there. But it was, it was, it was an experimentation in form. 
Mm, and and what a book. And and as I said, I do feel that the two kind of live together in such a beautiful dialogue with each other. Um, and one of the things that I found really intriguing on going back to the poetry and then moving on to the novel again was the notion that I think in the in the poetry there's more of a sense of the masculine members in the in the family, with, whereas with the novel we get such a clear sense of the women at the heart of this family story, which is also the story. I feel of, of contemporary America. We might move on to that in a second. Um, but I, I love the two incredibly strong female voices in the novel. And I was really intrigued by how it felt to write those because they're, they're not without complexity. They're quite difficult. There is a legacy of trauma and violence that is passed down through these three generations to our to our protagonist. Um, but mm. how did it feel kind of exploring that that female side and, and the effects of war and trauma on the, the female generations? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was raised by women. And so, you know, in my poems, um, or at least in that first collection, uh, the father figure was a myth. It, it was something that had to be created. Um, it had a long shadow. And uh, I wanted, the prose is, is, much more suitable to tend to flesh and bodies, right? What, what do they do after the scene? How do they take care of themselves? How do they, you know, feed them? How does the body is sustained? And prose is, an, is, a, is a good vehicle to kind of be specific about that. And so I think because I was raised by women and I saw them in not their mythological forms, but their very human forms, um, it, I was comfortable writing about, you know, mothers, uh, both for little dog and, you know, um, little dog's mother's mother. And it was important for me to, to not sort of um, turn them into women warriors, to kind of turn them into kind of these heroic, you know, um, unflinching sites of power. It, it, was, it would be easy to do that. But I think, I, I think often of Salman Rushdie, when he talks about writing the other, writing from uh, perspectives or writing about um, folks who are not like yourself, in this case, these women. He says, you know, even in fiction, we should use the, the tools of journalism to see the body, to take the historic context. And so I had to do a lot of research, you know, to see where these folks were coming from. What is the historic context? How do I portray their bodies in ways that are true, but without you know, uh, demeaning or cheapening their experiences. Um, and, and it really clicked when I heard Rushdie talk about that, you know, just, just see your subject the way a journalist would see a subject. And that still doesn't mean you could be objective, right? I, I don't think an objective truth is possible under a writer's gaze. It all goes through the filter. Um, but the attempt to kind of give them flaws is to also render them more human. Um, and that's ultimately the goal. Yeah, absolutely. And I even felt that when I said strong women, because I think that sometimes that's seen as a term that that means that they are these warrior women, whereas actually it's it is the flaws and the complexity that really I think gives your your story its its heart. Um, and it has a huge amount of heart, although it deals with with some of the more dark aspects, I think, of contemporary America. And um, I love the central concept of the novel. It really spoke to me straight away. This idea of, of little dog writing 
to a mother who could never read his words. Um, and I think the tensions at the heart of that are, are, are part of the sensibility that you bring as a poet, I think, to the novel form. You know, that sense of the tensions between what can be spoken and what can't be spoken. And how did that concept first come to you? And, and what did it give you? What freedoms did it give you within the text? Oh, it's interesting. A lot of folks have said, um, this book is so strange. I haven't read this before, um, anything like this before. And I think, you know, I was coming from poetry. Um, things are more esoteric than, than, than other genres. Um, and so we read kind of, you know, more uh, experimental texts, uh, both in fiction and in hybrid and in, 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 in poetry. And so to me, the book seemed very conservative as far as form. But when I think of, uh, you know, even Joyce, um, Ulysses, um, Portrait of the Artist, uh, The Dubliners, um, you know, that those three works are so important to me because they kind of, you know, first of all, from my vantage, and I think a vantage that's seldom, at least in America, read with Joyce, is that Joyce is a post-colonial writer. <laughs> and so he's coming out of, of, of you know, this, this new uh, position of, of reorienting uh, a milieu that has been cast off as a uh, sort of, you know, afterthought. And the same goes with the Hartford that I understood. You know, Hartford was a, a depraved city, quote unquote, a city where the best minds were kind of harvested from it and placed to Boston or New York. Uh, and who are the working class people who are left behind? Right, right. And, and I think, you know, reading uh, Joyce, reading Marguerite Duras, uh, James Baldwin's Go Tell It to the Mountain, taught me that, you know, you can kind of really use fiction to reposition a hierarchy of value within your world building. And, 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 and the fact that, you know, Ulysses was, you know, about a single day in, in Dublin, that itself, how it decided to take up space and time, um, you know, it, it takes probably more than a day to read it, right? So there's this interesting metaphysical tension where to, to consume time in the novel actually takes more of the real time. And that is a wonderful subversion of the hierarchy of powers and value. Um, and so I, I had good elders in the Anglo tradition of writing, I think, and, and even in translation as well. You know, so it, to me, the book seems quite uh, you know, mundane compared to what's been come before. Well, I'm so glad to hear you talk about Ulysses, um, and because I think it is a fascinating post-colonial text, and it is a fascinating text on how it deals with identity, um, and specifically national identity. You know, with Leopold Bloom as the son of a Hungarian mm -hmm. Jew living in a in a Dublin of the early 20th century that was far more cosmopolitan than the Dublin that I would have grown up in the 1980s uh, and 1990s you know so it's such an interesting it's such an interesting milieu that 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 story comes out of but one of the things that I found really illuminating about reading on earth we're briefly gorgeous is how it deals with the damaging effects of monolithic national identities and how you know in the america of today people who are seen to have a kind of a bifurcated national identity really are not seen as having any kind of place. And I was intrigued by the notion of Asian Americanness and how it feels that that's a, an identity that has been kind of overlooked. And you deal with that in the text through some fascinating anecdotes. Um, I, I love the anecdote about Lan and 
watching Tiger Woods and kind of looking at his identity. Um, and then the really shocking anecdote about Judge Roy Bean um, and the Chinese rail workers. I think those two little snippets of the text really spoke volumes to me um, and opened my eyes to a certain extent about you know, how and where Asian Americans are, are placed within the history of the state. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about those, those two anecdotes? Yeah, yeah. I think, well, you know, on a larger scale, I think Asian American identity, how it's negotiated, how it's articulated in America has been very fraught. Um, Asian Americans have been here, you know, um, since you know, Washington. Um, you know, they've they, you know, the first uh, Asian American was a Filipino uh, immigrant who came here in the early 18th century. And some of the largest, you know, massacres happened uh, with Chinese railroad workers, um, the largest mass lynching in which, you know, over 30 people were, were lynched and burned um, happened in the 1850s in Los Angeles, um, where a group of, you know, vigilante uh, sheriffs uh, kind of, you know, went into the Chinatown and, and, and lynched these folks. Um, but it's often kind of lost, right? And I think a lot of it is because it's positioned in the West, and the West is often lost. It's often seen or misseen as a sort of blank page, manifest destiny. Meanwhile, Native Americans live there, right? Uh, Mexican uh, uh, communities have thrived there way before it was quote-unquote settled. And so the myth of the wild, wild West creates a loss of, you know, the, the, the archive of failures uh, of the American project. And, and so, so much of it, it you know, with the, the Yellow Peril, um, the, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which America, it was the, the first time America excluded an entire race uh, from its foreign policy, the first time. And it went on for over 60 years. So I think we're having a reckoning. We're having a, a, an important reckoning. But American identity is fractured, you know? And I think like, that's kind of what I was really interested in as a novel. Um, often the, the great American novel, quote unquote, is asked to be cohesive, monolithic, as you said, um, often centering the Bildungsroman, the self-knowledge or the growth of a white male protagonist, very destination oriented. Where will this character arrive? And I kind of want to just write in American novel, whether it's great or not, it's up to folks to, to, to read. Uh, but I wanted to center fragmentation, to see that a, a novel coming out of America chooses to enact itself as debris rather than, uh, you know, a phallic monolith that we often see um, in our capitals, right? Um, and, and I wanted the book to kind of be encountered as detritus. Yeah. And I think that brings us back again to that kind of inability of communication or the, the, the fragmentation of communication between Little Dog and his mother through this act of writing something that can never be read. So I think that the novel sets out its store very beautifully and poetically in that way, you know, this notion that there may be forgiveness and there may be some kind of resolution, but not necessarily a simplistic one. And I do think that, the, you know, there are so many beautiful images in the novel, uh, which I as a poetry fan very much enjoyed. Um, and it's bookended with the, the images of these monarch butterflies. Can you talk to us a little bit about those? Yeah, I was just so stunned. when I encountered them through Annie Dillard's writing. Um, I believe in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she talked briefly about the, their migration. 
Um, but I kind of, you know, one of my strategies in both my poems and in the novel is to kind of recalibrate stereotypes, right? I don't want to turn away from, you know, these fraught, often overwritten stereotypes about certain subjects. And I think the idea of Asian American identity being tied to uh, a merely decorous, fragile butterfly, Madame Butterfly, um, you know, seductive, uh, uh, silky, you know, a uh, fae, right, a fete, and just wandering aimlessly, right, <laughs> along the spring day, flittering about. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to re reclaim that narrative and reposition the, the monarchs for what they are, which was, which are incredibly bold and, you know, uh, inspiring and strong, right? It takes five generations to migrate. They, they have to die five times um, to just to, to get to where they need to go. And then yet they know how to do it. And so I'd, I'd, rather than avoid, you know, a, a, a subject that has been so stereotyped, I wanted to just kind of rescue the object. And I think that is the great opportunity of language is that it's still moving. You know, we, we, we get to participate in it as the living. In a way, the living is one row in, you know, striated rock, right, in sediment. Like, that's our time. That's the present. What will we do during our very brief moment being alive um, to, to change the language, to contribute to it? And I wanted to just take the, the monarch butterfly and give it a new angle. Yeah, that's fascinating because it does bring us back to that notion that you capture in the title of of rather than a destination, it's a moment of understanding, a moment of revelation. That that is what most of us really it's the best we can hope for. And and in a sense it's enough um, to have these moments of of understanding or connection and also to understand that they can't ever be forever. But to go back to what you said about about those five generations of butterflies, um, one of the things that struck me when reading the novel was the very, very recent nature of the history that's being discussed here. You know, we have three generations in, in the novel um, leading back to the Vietnam War, which is very recent history. And to make reference to Ulysses again, I mean, my grandparents would have been born in Dublin in 1914 and 16, respectively. So, you know, like that's it. That's three generations that are spanning, you know, a century and a quarter now. Um, whereas the three generations in this novel, they're very close together. And yet the weight of that history really, really weighs upon them. And you spoke about the physicality of that with the with the women as well. And you know, there there are the 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 kind of uh mental effects, you know, the PTSD that the women are suffering. There's the violence that's passed down. And um, were you aware of how foreshortened that history and that trauma was when you were writing the novel? Or does it just kind of feel very familiar to you? Both. You know, I think the 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 trope or the unfortunate theme of men creating war and women literally cleaning up, often cleaning up the bodies, um, is, goes all the way back to Sophocles, right? And Antigone wanting to bury her brother. Mm. And, and I think this, so at one hand, it's, it's a, a species-wide condition, um, but specific to Vietnam's recent history, um, this was also true. And I really wanted to ask, you know, what was the role of joy in the aftermath of death, in the aftermath of violence? Um, and, and 
how do these women find a way, right? And I think there's a scene where they, they're lost in the grocery store. They can't get what they want, but then they find these mood rings. And it's like, it's just serendipitous, you know? And I think to me, that's actually a, a wonderful moment of agency because they saw something beautiful. And in the West, when we, we look at observation as, a, as a, a static act, often, you know, uh, one that doesn't have action it's, and therefore value, valueless, right? When we're in elementary school, you get participation points. But if you just are quiet and observe, then you might have a learning disability. Right? You might get sent to the principal <laughs> to get reexamined. Um, so in America, watching and looking um, are not highly valued skills, right? And I wanted to kind of have a different treatise on what a skill is and what observation is, that it's not passive, that finding beauty based on the knowledge of death, right? These women know death, they know that to the bone, but what will they do with that in this country? And what they did was they have nothing to really give their child, but they gave him a way to look at beauty. They gave him an eye for beauty. And that is what saves him at the end. It's what saves all of them. And and I'm reminded as well of that beautiful moment um, in the in the nail salon where the the woman comes in with the prosthetic leg, um, and the mother kind of massages the the point where the leg isn't, um, and I just thought that that was such a, a gorgeous moment, and again really captures that sense of of what can be given and what can be exchanged in a place where. And this brings us back to what you were saying about Hartford, Connecticut, but in a place that is not ascribed any value, um, in a place that is seen as valueless. And I'm intrigued as well by how masculinity then is depicted in the book, I suppose, in opposition to that possibility of exchange. Um, and I'd love to talk a little bit without giving too much away about the, the very beautiful central love story. Um, and just th the way that you deal with masculinity in the book, um, stemming from a very early scene on the bus where Little Dog kind of observes that the boys who are bullying him have absorbed their father's language. Um, and again, he's very passive. He doesn't speak. He observes. And that is kind of seized upon and, and reacted to with, with great violence. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how you how you approach that very kind of traditional American working class masculinity in the book. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting thing that I think a lot of people of color might uh, also share in that sometimes you know we go if you go back to W. Du Bois's double consciousness, you know sometimes when when you're a person of color in America, particularly in Hartford, where you know, there, there, there weren't so many Asian Americans, you learn to observe whiteness, perhaps even more carefully than whiteness observed itself. And I, I wanted to kind of put that into usefulness. And, you know, growing up in New England, working class, home of the Patriots, you know, the whalers, I got to see these boys and then men in ways that I think their girlfriends and their wives would never see them, right? They're, they're in this sort of social fraternic uh, milieu, but I also saw the great anxiety that they have to perform because here, and maybe it's true in other parts of the world as well, you know, to be male, to be a, a man was, was such a narrow, narrow uh, definition 
And I think America is often seen as something, a place of technological advance. But I think when it comes to how we look at men, we're still quite primitive. We, we only allow men to be very few things. And so I saw boys, even just before they touch each other, have to have a magic spell. And they say, no homo, just to put their arms around each other's shoulders. And I think if, we're, if we are a culture where literally boys need a magic spell in abracadabra in order to permission touch, then we are failing them, right? And you see this manifest in very, very toxic ways. And I think for me, I wanted the character Trevor I wanted to put him in a position where I asked him, what would happen if you said no to this lineage? What would it be like, right, for you to finally say no and yet have no other option, have no other embodiment to step into, right? And I think at one hand, there's so much about white male privilege that is true. On another hand, there's a lot of depravity. There's a lot of deficiency there. And, and in that case, Little Dog, having raised by women from a tradition that was much more open to sexuality. In Vietnam, you know, we, we see folks of double genders as shamans, as like Tiresias in the Greek, right, having power. Uh, and so Little Dog was actually had an easier time with, with his queerness than Trevor. Uh, but there's that moment in the river, right, where I think Trevor is fully himself. And I think that was an important scene for me because I, I wanted Trevor to kind of break away. And he broke away towards being tender and mercy. You know, no one taught him that. He wouldn't be um, congratulated for that by any of the folks who raised him. Um, but he did that, right? And so I think it's kind of like, what would happen if the the culture is denied. Where would a boy go? Where could he be held? And oftentimes it's nowhere other than this small interaction with a friend hidden, you know, uh, uh, cast away mm. in the shadows of a barn. Yes, yeah, and it's such a beautiful scene, and it 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 does bring me back to the the notion that this this family unit, damaged and flawed though it is, you know, that there is a sense of an embodiment and sensuality and touch, um, whether it's kind of little dog massaging his mother or the moment I spoke about earlier in the nail salon where she massages this this woman's leg, um, and yeah, there's such a difference, there's such a distance between those two worlds, and I do think ocean. You know this this novel. It, it has so many layers to it, and you know it, it kind of tricked me into thinking it was this beautiful intimate space, which it was. And then by the time we get to kind of the, through the exploration of the identity, and then into the exploration of the opioid crisis, I thought, oh my goodness, this this person has tricked me into reading the great American novel, <laughs> which was just you know it was full of such lovely surprises when it opened windows onto one issue and then another so deftly done that it never felt heavy-handed in any way. But I would love you to talk a little bit about the the opioid crisis because, it, you know, it, it feels like a very kind of serious um, and difficult American cultural moment. Um, 
that that doesn't seem to be going anywhere you know it seems to be worsening um and and i think as well it's probably tied to this this desire to write about realities in in hartford um do you think that this epidemic is is tied to those traditional ideas of masculinity that don't allow for any kind of escape than potentially other than the chemical it certainly is i mean you see this um in in drinking as well um, you know, my, my biological grandfather, um, you know, who I just recently kind of learned about um, through DNA testing, um, was, had, tr- had trouble with alcoholism. And he's actually Irish and Scottish. So that's, that's where most of my uh, that, makeup do comes it. from that area. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I did, the, I did the, the DNA thing. And then the majority, you know, the big, the, the one-fourth of it was Irish-Scottish. Um, Oh my goodness! We try and claim we do try and claim everyone, though Ocean. You know, I think we have I think we have inside people working in the genealogy places saying, "Yeah, tell them they're Irish, so they'll come visit us." Oh, well, I, I'm i would be more than happy to. I've been there once, and it was a, a wonderful. I, it, I understood where where all where why so many songs and literature came from that land when I was there. Um, it was it was so gentle to the imagination. Um, but you know that's just from a, a visitor being there just two weeks. I'm sure there's more I'm missing. Um, uh, but um, yeah, I, I think the thing about the opioid crisis was that yes, there's issues of masculinity that made it worse, but it was so pervasive that you would have teachers hooked on it without knowing, right? Because it came out of the the, the pain pill, uh, you know, oxycotton uh, created by Purdue Pharma in Stanford, Connecticut. That was the epicenter. And so it traveled up the freeway up to Maine and down to West Virginia. And then it went down towards the, the, the Western corridor to Ohio. Um, so it was a pain pill. And they would, they would prescribe it to, for arthritis, headaches. Right? Um, and the reason, what it, it's interesting as a, as a poet, because the epidemic essentially started with language. When the salespeople for Purdue Pharma were selling this pill on the phone, and the doctors asked them, is this, um, you know, abuse, is this uh, addiction resistant? You know, instead of saying yes, would be, which would be false, which would be an illegal lie, the salespeople were taught and trained to say, uh-huh. Wow. So, wow. so you say, is this addictive? Uh-huh. Is, is this uh, abuse resistant? Uh-huh, uh-huh, mm-hmm. So it's not a yes, <laughs> but so uh-huh, the, the phrase uh-huh is a word. It's not a dictionary, but you better believe it's a word because it created this whole mess, right? And so it was sold to doctors and doctors believed that they were prescribing a safe thing. And when, you know, the answer was to take that off the market, re- very reactionary, but you still have all these addicts and the next best thing was heroin. Um, and so that's still going on, you know, so... I grew up with that before it was a term um, in the early aughts, right after 9-11, sandwiched between 9-11 and the Great Recession was the beginning of this opioid epidemic that, that didn't have a name. So I saw, you know, uh, young people, friends who were buried with so much shame because they were seen as addicts, crackheads, junkies. Um, no one gave them the same empathy uh, that they do now when there's so much information. Uh, and they were, they were buried without ceremony, some of them. 
you know, without wakes, without service. And it, it was a, a, it was like a slaughter of, of a generation. And, and I don't, you know, say that lightly. No, no, absolutely. And I mean, we in Ireland have our own heroin epidemic that has been kind of going on and off for the past 30 years, but we've never had that we've never had that same kind of prescription of of opioids or anything like that we, we you know the the addiction doesn't start there and um, so it's a very different kind of demographic and um, and yet i think the way they're treated here is very similar you know they're seen as a a kind of an unfortunate public expression of an embarrassing private problem rather than being seen as something that is society wide which which of course it is and and a reaction to problems in society. Um, and I just found your depiction of Trevor incredibly sensitive and intuitive in terms of, you know, we as the reader, we see him as the flawed product of a very damaged America. Um, and yet our heart breaks for him um, and for all of the other people who, who go by the wayside along with him as we read the novel and as Little Dog's kind of circle of friends is, is completely decimated by this uh, this terrible kind of plague in society. So as I said, it kind of, it took me by surprise because I think that you've managed to weave so much into this novel without it feeling like that attempt, you know, that 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 didactic monolithic attempt to make the great statement on America, because of course there is no one America, you know, there are Americas. And I, I was so delighted to have the insight into, into Little Dog's America. Um, which I think is a place of, of kind of great beauty and, and truth, but also of real pain. So it's been just such a pleasure to talk to you about it, Ocean. But oh, before I you. let you go, um, I'd love to ask you a little bit, um, one more thing. One of the things that I love about this particular award, the Dublin Literary Award, um, that you're currently shortlisted for, is that it comes from libraries. Your books are nominated by libraries. Um, it's based on the reactions of readers. Um, I think librarians know readers better than anybody else, better than any marketing executive in any book company. Um, and I just always like to ask people, what did libraries mean for you when you were growing up? Did you spend time in libraries? Uh, did they form you as a, as a reader and a writer, either as a child or during your university years? I mean, they mean it. I mean, I think I, I joined the legion of, of writers um, who say that libraries mean everything, you know, because, you know, writers, it's, it's very difficult to make a living, you know, especially as a younger writer. And, you know, to have such books available, free and open to the public, um, and to have an education where you go into the stacks um, the way I did, and just kind of just walk. I mean, that's so special, and it's. I think it's it's true also of used bookstores because you get a sense of what your community is interested in. You get a sense of what names keep coming up, what names are familiar to you. And I remember, you know, going into the libraries and just walking in the literature until I, I would end up in a different language without knowing it. And I would just pick out things that interest me, things that I recognize, and I would just come back with a stack and just kind of dive in. And, and th that, you know, no MFA, no writing program could, could replicate that sort of self-inquiry, that autodidactic sort of uh, quest, you know, that journey. And it's such a, a journey of pleasure and time. 
and, and yes, the librarians, you know, they, they are shepherds of, of one's imagination, especially when one is very young. Um, they can lead you, steer you literally to the right place um, amongst this, you know, uh, great phantasmagora of, of books. And I, I think I, they're, to me, they're like guardian angels, um, of, particularly of kids that, like myself, where there wasn't many places to turn to to enrich in the imagination. Um, and so th the library was also a refuge. It was um, a place of rest and reprieve and replenishment. Mm, absolutely. I think they are one of those spaces that are both, you know, they're privileged spaces, but they're also democratic spaces. Um, and I will always remember my first ever visit to a library that I remember being amazed that I could have more than one book being amazed that I could take home like five or six at a time and kind of thinking that an alarm was going to go off as I went out the front door. <laughs> it right, was such a gorgeous right. thing. Um, and I think, you know, the notion of books for free is something that I've just never managed to get over my excitement about, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. But Ocean, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to us um, for this podcast. And I know our listeners will be delighted to hear you talk about this gorgeous book and any of them who haven't read it yet are going to be dying to get their hands on it um, so I will just wish you the best of luck in the shortlisting um, and hopefully see you in Ireland soon Thank you Jessica, it's a deep pleasure and um, I'm, I'm really grateful, thank you Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2021 Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online award ceremony on Thursday the 20th of May. Yes, and you can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and there is where you can browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme. 